Everyone else, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we've been looking at Hebrews the, the past month or so, uh, and we'll continue to do so for a while, we will see again and again that Hebrews puts forth for us a vision that Jesus is greater than anything else that we would put in his place. We've seen how Jesus is greater than the prophets. We've seen how he's greater than the angels. And now the author goes on to show us how Jesus is greater even than Moses. And we will see this morning what that means for us. Uh, Looking at Hebrews chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a culture and in an age of alternatives. When if you don't like something you have, someone is quick to offer you an alternative. And what they're doing is saying, among all the many options you are faced with, I am suggesting that you also consider this, whether it's another lifestyle or another breakfast cereal, another home, another job, another car, another phone. We want you to consider among your options what we advocate you to consider. So when the author of Hebrews says to us to consider Jesus, we may think that's the idea. That as you look at all the possible role models and heroes and wise men and worldviews and religious systems that are there for you to choose from, would you please add Jesus to that list and consider Jesus among your options? And we would be completely wrong and misunderstanding what that means if that's how we understand it. That's not at all what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. When he says consider Jesus, he means it much like we just sang. Place him before you as your vision. Fix your eyes on him. Let other things go. Put other things to the side and fixate on him. See the world through that lens. Like you would say to a student wasting their time and and failing out of school because they're not focusing on their studies. You'd say, consider your future. Think about this from that perspective. Look at it that way. Or to a person throwing away their life on a reckless addiction, you would say, consider your family, consider your loved ones, the people you're hurting. We want to consider things through that lens. To Christians in the first century, tired of being persecuted, weary of the sacrifice involved in following Jesus, and ready to go back to the socially, culturally more acceptable and easier option, which for them was the the way of Moses. The author of Hebrews writes, no, consider Jesus, make him your vision, put him before you. Think about what he has done. Think about what he has promised. Consider him. And when you do, you will see that nothing else compares. Let that consideration, let that vision guide your circumstances, guide your choices, guide your way through life. 
and to us as well when we consider Jesus. We see that nothing gives us the direction and the confidence that we desperately need in life except the faithfulness of Jesus in finishing the work that God has given him. In these verses, we'll see what that work is and we'll see what difference it makes in our lives. The first thing we see and the reason we are to consider Jesus is that he accomplishes a greater mission. Jesus accomplishes a greater mission. The author of Hebrews begins by giving Jesus a title that surprises us, perhaps, in verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. High priest, we understand, if you've been here the past several weeks as we've looked at the role of Jesus in becoming like us so that he could be our priest. He could stand before God and represent us. But apostle, why? Why apostle? Isn't that what Jesus' disciples were called? Why is Jesus an apostle? Well, the title is very telling. Because the disciples of Jesus became apostles, that name changed once Jesus sent them out on mission. Because the term apostle, unlike disciple, which means a follower, a disciple is someone who is sent on a mission. It literally means someone who is sent. And Jesus, before he ever sent the disciples out, was himself sent into the world. In John 20, When he's sending his disciples, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as the one who sent me. The point is that Jesus recognized he was here with a task that God had given him. More than that, he fulfills that mission. He does what he is sent to do in verse 2. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. That word faithful, it means doing what you were trusted to do. Reliable, dependable, someone you can count on to get the job done. And Jesus came with a mission and he got the job done. Faithful as in Matthew 25 in the parable where Jesus has the the manager saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The servant who did what they were supposed to do, who accomplished their task. And the author of Hebrews is saying, just as we see faithfulness in our duties, and Moses was faithful with what God called him to, Jesus had a mission and he was faithful to do it. And that's going to be very important later on when we see what that means for us. But it's all well and good to say that Jesus did what he was called to do, because Moses also had a mission from God. And Moses also was faithful in his mission, which might not impress me and you a whole lot, but to the people receiving this letter, early Jewish Christians tempted to give up on Jesus and go back to Moses, which had always worked for them before. The question remains, what's so special about Jesus? Why would we want him when following him involves pain when we can just go with Moses? What did Jesus do that Moses didn't? I mean, Jesus walked on water, but Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus fed 5,000 people, but Moses fed the entire nation of Israel for 40 years. Jesus stood up to Rome and was crucified. Moses stood up to Pharaoh and won. What's so special about Jesus? Well, that's what the author of Hebrews gets into. He has to make it clear that the mission that Jesus accomplishes, what he's faithful to do, is so much greater than any other task, any other calling, any other mission, anything else that God has ever asked anyone to do in all of history. 
Verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. That's great. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What was Moses supposed to do? Testify to what was still to come. Moses did a good job. He was faithful. But if you stop at Moses, you miss the whole point of Moses, which was to point to Jesus. Moses' job was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, as Jesus would himself say in John 5, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. What What Moses was talking about was Jesus. Moses did great things by the power of God, but his main role was to set up the salvation that God was planning through Jesus Christ. I once, I've, I used to, I've played in many orchestras. I love to go to orchestra concerts. And there was one time in, uh, in high school, I was taking a friend to an orchestra concert. My friend had never been to an orchestra performance before and didn't know how things worked. And if you've been to an orchestra concert and you get there on time or early, you know that before the concert actually starts, all the musicians have to gather and they start to, to tune up and they're practicing some runs or some things that they're going to need to get their fingers ready for. And, uh, and they're, they're tuning up, they're preparing, and then the concertmaster comes out and starts the tuning process and they all tune and they get all in tune and they're all ready to go. And after that happened, my friend went... <laughs> and, and he said to me, I know it wasn't very good, but it's rude not to clap, right? <laughs> Having never been to a concert before, he thought that was it. That's what we came to hear. Just that weird little noise that just happened there. He had no idea that all that was just getting us ready for the real show. And if, if God's people were to go back to Moses or stop at Moses, they're stopping short of what Moses was all about, what, what God's people were supposed to be getting ready for, what Moses was pointing to and tuning up the people of God to receive. But why should you and I care about this? We're not, I don't think, in any danger of going back to Moses. However, we are, I believe, always in danger of settling for something less than what God has planned. For being satisfied with just a taste or just a hint of what God is planning to do. We want the morality of the Christian life, but not everything else. Or we want the community that comes with God's kingdom, but not the lifestyle of discipleship. We want the blessing, but not the cost. I worry that we easily go back to something like Moses. We get distracted. We get excited about something and more invested in something that is not fully God's plan. We have other goals and projects that that capture our attention and our loyalty, whether it's political or financial or family or community. And the work of Jesus only interests us insofar as it helps us go after these other missions that we're excited about, these other adventures and, and plans that we want to invest in and give towards and give our lives towards. And if Jesus isn't helping us do that, then what good is he? And when we do that, we've we've gone after Moses. We've gone after something less Something maybe just a part, something good in itself, but not what God has in mind for his people. The mission of Jesus was this, to build God's family. That's actually what this word house is pointing to. You know, the the author of Hebrews could have used a different word in Greek if he wanted to describe a building, a structure, an edifice like that we're in right now. 
But he didn't choose that word. He chose a word specifically that means at the same time house and the family that lives in that house, the household. And that's what's important. Because you are called to be a part of that house. Not just the structure, but the household, the family. Jesus' mission was to build the house, the household, the family of God. So let other things take a back seat to that. Let other things give way. Let other missions submit to the building project that Jesus makes you a part of by calling you in to the family of God. He accomplishes a greater mission, and we don't want to miss out on it. But not only is Jesus accomplishing a greater mission, but his role in the story is bigger. Bigger than Moses's, bigger than anyone's. In other words, it's not just about what Jesus does, what he accomplishes. It's about who he is. And because of who he is, we see that Jesus deserves greater honor. He accomplishes a greater mission and he deserves greater honor. Verse three, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Notice what happens there. Jesus is the builder of the house. And Moses, what's his role? Is he the subcontractor? No. He's he's part of the house. He's part of the project. He's part of what Jesus is doing. And not just Moses, but me and you as well. Verse 6, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We, you, Me, all of God's family, we are the house that he is building. And yet a house doesn't build itself, does it? At least not yet. Sure, we'll get there someday. Verse four, for every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. I had a friend uh, years ago who hired a, a, a contractor and a company to build his family's house. And after they had finished building the house and the builders and contractor had all left, immediately the house just started crumbling. Portions of the roof fell off, whole walls were falling off, windows were disconnected. And let me tell you what my friend did not do. He did not go find the builder and say, man, isn't it just a shame that those pieces aren't holding themselves together? I mean, what can you do, right? The house just isn't doing it. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. No, he went to the builder and said, hey, your job isn't done until this house is done. When this house is what it's supposed to be, then your job is done. Because a house isn't going to build itself. Or if we were to turn it around towards something more positive, when you go and look at at a work of art, at colors beautifully arranged in shapes and designs, you don't look at it and go, that paint did an amazing job placing itself on the canvas organizing itself, shading itself, and presenting itself. No, that that would be nonsense. We don't praise the paint. We don't praise the painting. We don't praise the materials and the structure of the building. We look beyond them to the one who put them together. So whether praise or not, it goes to the builder of the house, the worker of the art. And that's what's happening here. That's what the author of Hebrews wants you to see. That it's Jesus that's behind all this making it happen. You're familiar with, with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, it uses this beautiful word in Greek. We are God. We are his workmanship. The word is poema, from which we get poem. You are the workmanship, the poem, the creation, the artistic work of an artist, of God. We are the work of art. We are the building that show off the skills of the artist. That's what we mean when we say that you should glorify God. We talk about that a lot. We use that word so much in the church. Oh, give glory to God. I want to glorify God for this. I just want to give glory to God in all that I do. But do we, do we know what we mean when we talk about giving glory to God? What we mean is bringing glory to God means showing others how good God is. Whether it's in Him giving me the skill to do something or giving me the ability to overcome a circumstance or showing Himself more worthy than other things that I could have pursued with my life. We give glory to God when by our words and our deeds and our choices and in everything, we show others how good God is. And as his poema, as his work of art, as his building, we are showing the goodness, the glory of the one who put us together, the one who arranged us and created us and is still doing so. Not one, but two times this morning, we sang the words from Revelation chapter five where there's a scene in the throne room and, and John, who's witnessing these visions, is weeping. And there is weeping in the throne room because there's these seals, these scrolls that are sealed shut. And those scrolls represent the unfolding plan of God, His purposes for creation and for the world. And they're weeping because nobody is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. Nobody's willing to carry out, nobody's able and worthy to carry out God's plan for history until he sees a lion who is slain like a lamb, who is worthy to break open the seals, open the scroll, and carry out God's plan. And then look what happens when that, when that takes place in Revelation 5. Beginning in verse 9, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and, your, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In the throne room of heaven, Jesus is worshiped and given glory and honor because he completed his mission. Because he had made a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, brought them into his household, made them into his building, his temple of the dwelling of his spirit. He finished the mission. He did it. And that's why he receives praise, because it was him that did it. It's not worthy are you because all these people decided to come in. No, worthy are you because you brought them in and made them into a kingdom, made them into the people you imagined them to be. His mission was to lay down his life to make that happen because otherwise they would have been dead in their sins. The mission of Jesus shows us the power of God because he conquered death to make it happen. The mission of Jesus shows us the love of God because he went to such great lengths sacrificing himself to rescue those who didn't deserve it. And the mission of Jesus shows us the wisdom of God because despite 
all opposition of the enemy, he overcame sin and defeated death and the devil. The power, the love, and the wisdom of God are on display in what Jesus did. And that's why he receives and is deserving of greater glory. But I want to urge you that that's not just something that we will apply someday in heaven when we praise him. And that's also not just something we apply on Sunday morning when we sing praises to God. The fact that Jesus is deserving of greater glory is something we apply every day. As we trust the artist, we trust the architect, the builder of the building, the one whose reputation, the one whose glory and honor depends on how that work turns out. Jesus is not done until we are who he wants us to be. And his kingdom work is not done until all his children are brought in. And so the goal of Jesus is not to bring glory to the church. The goal of the church is to bring glory to Jesus. And likewise, what Jesus does in your life is not about celebrating you and supporting your plan and supporting your will and carrying out your design. Oh God, bless me as I choose to do what I want to do. No. You fit into God's plan in the way that His wisdom and His love and His power determines. There was a time when Jesus, encountering a man born blind, born blind, was asked by His disciples, well, whose fault was it? Did He sin somehow before He was born that He was that he was born blind? Or were his parents sinful and, and he was punished for it by being born blind? And Jesus said, no, it wasn't his parents or him that is the cause for this tragic thing that happened in his life, this difficult thing that he's dealing with. In John 9, verse 3, Jesus said, the reason this happened was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Whatever darkness, whatever difficulty, and likewise, whatever blessing, Whatever circumstances God brings into your life, whether he's painting with bright, shiny colors or dark shadows, the reason he is doing that is because he is the artist. He is the builder. He is the one deciding what the picture looks like. And he knows best. And so we give glory to him. No matter what you do in this life, no one is singing your praises in heaven. That's not what it's about. We're singing the praises of Jesus who planned it all and made it all happen. And so we pray, we make our prayer, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Fit my life into your plans. God, how can my life serve the bigger mission that you're a part of? Ask not what God can do for you. I'm sorry. Ask what you are called to do for God. How can you go about bringing his goodness on display. Consider Jesus because he accomplishes a greater mission and is therefore deserving of greater honor. But lastly, we see because he inspires greater confidence. Verse six, we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is accomplishing this great mission that brings him great glory. And that mission is the building of a house, a household, a family. And our hope is that we are going to be included in that. Our hope is that we are a part of that beautiful project, that poema. And verse six says that we are. 
If we hold fast. If we don't let go. Hold fast to what, though? Aye, there's the rub. Because by itself, that phrase, if we hold fast, sounds an awful lot like it's up to us, right? Like I've put an infant child on my shoulders and said, hold on tight or you're going to fall. Would I ever do that? No. No. The grammar structure is clear in the Greek that our confidence and our boasting are in our hope. We are confident in our hope. We are boasting in our hope. What we have to hold on to, not give up to, uh, cling to, is that all our confidence in everything we boast in is what we hope in. But what does that mean? Well, confidence, I hope, is clear. You know, what, what is it that answers your doubt? What do you look to when you aren't sure about your worth, your acceptability, your value, your future? Whatever it is you look to to give you hope in those moments, that's your confidence. Whether it's your body image, your job, your name or reputation, your skills. That's what you look to for confidence. And the author of Hebrews says our confidence needs to be in our hope. Our hope that, that though I don't deserve it, God is merciful. God, for whatever reason, His own choice has fixed His steadfast love on me. And He does not change. And He does not let go. That's my confidence. Nothing else answers my doubt. But what about my boasting? Because that word itself is pretty negative in our minds usually, I think, right? Like we, we don't like people to boast. You don't, you don't want somebody going around talking about how awesome they are. It gets old after not a while, a very short time. But that word boast doesn't just mean to talk about yourself. To boast in something is to talk about its goodness. You don't necessarily have to boast in yourself. You can boast in something else. When a, when a NASCAR driver wins a race and crosses that finish line and they're interviewing him or her after the race and saying like, hey, can you tell us about that? You know, what, 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 how'd you win the race? What are they going to boast in? Well, I just went out there and pushed that car as fast as I could. No. They boast in their team. They boast in their crew. They boast in the ones who made the car. They boast in the technology. They boast in their sponsors. They talk about all those things that got them across the finish line. And likewise, in, in the Christian life, we are called to boast, not in ourselves. We boast, we make a big deal of what gets us across the finish line. The author of Hebrews says it is our hope. We boast in our hope. But what does that mean? Well, first, that rules out the things we've accomplished, the things we do, the way we've lived. In Jeremiah 9, the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast, point to, make a big deal out of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. What's going to give you hope, what's going to get you across the line is not anything you do. It's God who practices steadfast love, righteousness, and justice. Or as Paul says it in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm going to look to, what I'm going to find my hope in, and therefore boast about, is what God has done for me through Jesus. 
My, our boast and our confidence is this, that Jesus was sent to accomplish an amazing mission to build the house of God, to fill it with His family. And He has, for His own reasons, included you and me in that. So our security, our boasting, our confidence is not that we've got it right, not that we've got our act together, not that we're better than other people, not that we're smarter, not that we're stronger, but this, Matthew 16. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I will do it. I will build it. The author of Hebrews tells us to hold on tight to our hope, which is that Jesus will one day finish the work that he is doing in us. He will build his church. He is the builder. We are the building. He is the artist. We are the masterpiece. And he is committed to finishing his work. That's our hope, that Jesus has pinned his glory on finishing his work in us. And he's not going to stop until he does it. So holding fast to our confidence in our hope means knowing that Jesus is going to show the universe what a powerful and loving God he is by finishing the work he started in us. As Paul says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or as we sang earlier, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promises are yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. Jesus will finish the work that he has started. It's up to him. He's the builder. And rather than exclude our effort, rather than make us feel like, well, then we don't need to do anything. That promise, that grace actually enables our effort. It makes us able to obey. Look at how the author of Hebrews describes that in Hebrews 10. We, we saw a little bit of this as our assurance of pardon. Using this same word, hold fast. Using that same idea of Jesus being the faithful one. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we, how do we hold fast? We stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Have you ever had to do a job that felt pointless because you had no guarantee it was going to last? It's like sweeping a dirt road, okay? It feels pointless, like cleaning up my kid's bedroom floor. It's not going to last, right? And the promise here is to hold on because Jesus is faithful and we know his mission will not fail. He's going to do it. We will be kept until the end. And that makes us eager to do our part in it. It makes us eager to keep at it and keep trying. We can be confident that we're not working for nothing. Confident that we're not wasting our time, spinning our wheels. Confident that this path that we're on following him will lead to the good end we desire. And so we pray in faith the words of Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The Holy Spirit, through the book of Hebrews, calls you to consider Jesus, to make Him your vision that, that guides you, to consider Him because he, what He has done and what He is doing are the only solid foundation you have to build your life on. 
Because Jesus is faithful to finish the job that God gave him. The job of bringing you and me and all his children home and making us into something we could never make ourselves. Because he is faithful to do that, we have confidence in life and in death. And so do not ever come to this church expecting that you will be given a list of things to do and not do in order to make God happy. Don't come here expecting that you will be built up and praised as a good, moral, rule-following person that God will someday reward because of that. Because that is not the gospel. That is you trying to build yourself into a house. And that doesn't work. No, here we preach Christ who lived the perfect life that God requires of you. Who died the death for sin that God demands of you. And who rose from the dead and lives forever in order to guarantee the future you desire. So if we have any hope or confidence, anything to boast in, it is not you. It is Christ in you. As we're about to sing in a moment. With every breath I long to follow Jesus, for He has said that He is making all things new. Day by day I know He will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. And when the race is complete, what's my boast? Still I shall repeat, not I, but through Christ in me. Let us praise God that He has given us a faithful, faithful Savior. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Jesus, who has run the race in our place, has won the victory in our place, who is building us into a holy temple for His own glory, and who will receive all the praise. And though our hearts may seek after praise and glory and attention, You are the one who is at work. You are the builder. And may our lives reflect the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of the one who is building us into his family. We praise you for this, for a faithful Savior that we can count on. Let us boast in that. In his name we pray. Amen.